This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. sketch in the British television comedy series Monty Python. A customer returns to a pet shop where he has earlier bought a supposedly living parrot. The owner refuses to accept that the bird is dead and the confrontation leads to what David Crystal describes as a glorious outburst of deadly lexicon. So here goes. Customer. He's bleeding demised. Owner. No, no. He's pinning. Customer. He's not pinning. He's passed on. This parrot is no more. He has ceased to be. He's expired and gone to meet his maker. He's a stiff, bereft of life. He rests in peace. If you hadn't nailed him to his perch, he'd be pushing up daisies. His metabolic processes are now history. He's off his twig. He's kicked the bucket. He's shuffled off his mortal coil, run down the curtain and joined the bleeding choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. Do dictionaries hold a mirror up to society? On this week's show, celebrated linguist David Crystal talks history and language, the golden age of grammar, and how to die linguistically in his fascinating new book, Words in Time and Place, exploring language through the historical thesaurus of the Oxford English Dictionary. And have we misunderstood Shakespeare's sonnets? Scottish poet and musician Don Patterson talks Shakespeare, craft and how to become a better reader. This is a show about inventiveness and culture, genius and imagination, euphemisms and some rocking terms of endearment. But first, what does Shakespeare's sonnets mean to the 21st century reader? John Patterson is a Scottish poet, writer and jazz musician. Born in Dundee in 1963, Don teaches creative writing at the University of St Andrews and is the university's writer-in-residence. He is also poetry editor for Picador. In 1993, Don's first collection of poetry, Nil Nil, won the Ford Poetry Prize for Best First Collection. This was followed up by God's Gift to Women, which won the T.S. Eliot Prize and the Geoffrey Faber Memorial Prize. In 2003, Don's collection of poems, Landing Light, won both the T.S. Eliot Prize and the Whitbread Poetry Award and launched Don onto the international poetry circuit. Don's other notable works include The Eyes, adaptions of the works of Spanish poet Antonio Machado and Orpheus, a version of Rilke's De Sonnet and Orpheus, published by Faber in 2006. Don is Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a Fellow of the English Association. He received an OBE in 2008 and the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry in 2010. Don's latest collection of poetry is called Rain and is a very profound meditation on grief, friendship and love. Well, I had the pleasure of meeting up with Don Patterson at the Mountains to the Sea DLR Books Festival in early September. I asked Don 
about the writing of his recent poetry collection, Rain, and whether we can ever bring grief to a close. Up to a point. I mean, I think you write these things partly out of necessity, but again, especially in regards to things like loss, I don't think the point is to, you know, to seek closure, because I mean, I think anyone who's undergone any kind of bereavement understands that it's not about closure. In fact, it's often about finding a way of keeping it open so that you can go on feeling these things. You know, you don't want to, to close anything. You know, so I think actually sometimes poetry is a way of, you know, keeping the dead close still. And it's interesting when you say that, because sometimes for the people that we've loved, that we've lost, we recite poetry in our heads to remind ourselves of them how poetry can resonate in so many ways yeah I think there's a kind of an Orphic thing going on there and as much as the song seems to sometimes sing across the divide you know that was definitely the way that Rilke conceived of it you know it's a, we use song we use poetry as a means of singing between time and no time between the, the land of the dead and the land of the living and I think because we do have a strong sense of our own sort of impending demise we do think of ourselves as kinds of ghosts in a sense you know and that, which is a paradoxical condition but I do think that poetry does heal that it does make it easier to live with that rather terrifying idea definitely. And growing up was Rilke a very important poet for you? Growing up I wasn't really reading poetry but certainly as a, as a, as a young man Rilke uh, opened up a, a whole kind of range of possibilities I think for, for poetry that I hadn't really experienced from any poet in English. I think one of the things that was interesting for me was that there were kind of almost more primitive and older uses of the poem if you like that, that Rilke accessed that were quite unfamiliar from the kind of Anglophone tradition and you know almost kind of a, a, sh- a shamanistic or a prophetic use of the language that I find quite intoxicating. I think I, Everyone finds that in, in, in Rilke. With any luck, it opens up certain kinds of rhetorical braveries that you can sort of arrogate to yourself that otherwise you wouldn't have the confidence to, to take on. Because, you know, a resting state these days is sort of, you know, a terminal self-consciousness, you know, I think you've, you've, got, you've got to kind of find a voice in which to address these things first. Uh, it can't really be your own. Rilke, for many of us, it was a model or at least one possibility how one might set about that. When you were growing up in Scotland, who were the great Scottish poets that you would have been introduced to? I didn't really read much Scottish poetry when I was younger. I were taught Scottish, you know, sort of various Scottish poets at school, but a lot of them were, didn't mean very much to me. But we, we did a lot of McCaig, who I didn't appreciate at the time, and I do much more now. But mm. more recently, I would say George Mackay Brown had been a, quite a strong influence I hope you know I think Macabre was a fantastic point but not when again we were taught at school much and a, and a minor figure that was hardly mentioned someone like William Souter I think is really a, quite a, a remarkable point in his, on his best days and Ella McDermott as well but the stuff we did at school wasn't, wasn't particularly inspiring. Now can I ask you a bit about Shakespeare and the quintessential Shakespeare sonnet. You've written a very interesting book on Shakespeare and how we have possibly misunderstood Shakespeare. I don't think we've necessarily misunderstood him, but I think, you know, with something like the sonnets, and I guess it happens to a lot of classic works of literature, we don't read them in quite the same way anymore, and we don't really read them as literature, and I think all I tried to do in that book was really read the the, the sonnets as a reader, as someone would read a, a contemporary poem, trying to sort of stay open to Shakespeare the, the human rather than Shakespeare the uh, icon, and read the poems as the product of that feeling sort of fallible genius and, and, and not as these kind of unapproachable perfect works which they're not some of the points are perfect many of them are very flawed but flawed in the most interesting way because because he was a genius but it's funny that you know whether you travel to India the Congo people will always know a sonnet, a Shakespeare sonnet. What is it about him that he has such tremendous universal appeal? Was it his ability to capture the simple beauties in love and then the treacherous aspects in human relationships? 
I think well, there are two sides to that because the sonnets are unusual in as much as uh, it's probably about the one sustained occasion where Shakespeare was speaking as himself. As a dramatist, he managed to suppress his own ego to the point that he could really inhabit any character, no matter how demonic or angelic or anything in between. You know, with the same kind of verisimilitude and absolute conviction. But the, the sonnets are different. He speaks as himself, and I think what tends to appeal is the fact that yeah, he does address love, but it's love in its genuine complexity and and and, uh, and, and contradiction and pain and, and confusion. I think that's what people like. Identify within the science. And do you think he was responsible for all of those sonnets? Without a shadow of a doubt. I think the arguments that he wasn't are absolutely hilarious. I mean, I, I do enjoy following them, but um, I think they're pointless and stupid. <laughs> it's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, the various uh, theories about alternative authorship, I don't stand up to any kind of sensible scrutiny. When you say sensible scrutiny, is it that we like to find faults with our great heroes in literature? So it's an easy one to throw out that maybe Marlowe wrote some of his plays. Marlowe probably did collaborate in some of the early plays, but as far as the sonnets are concerned, I think, you know, I, again, it's pathetically subjective, but I think you know, so any poet reading that would tell you immediately that this was an absolutely consistent voice. And also, there's too many points of contact with the plays themselves, you know, so all the evidence, shall we say, leads us to, to think that these were Shakespeare's sonnets. But, I mean, the real point is that people are happy to do anything that stops them speaking about the poems. They're far more happy to be distracted by the question of authorship than, than it's actually sit down and read the bloody poems again, you know, which is, uh, for me, the important thing. And when he started out on this great exploration of Shakespeare did it change how you view him now and how does that change now that you've really grappled with Shakespeare? Changed my view of, of, of certain individual sonnets, changed my view of him. I think that if you read them closely, I think you have a, a much deeper insight into the kind of landscape of his own mind and uh, the, the extraordinary pressure he's, uh, he was under in regards to his own sexuality. Yeah, I think that the sonnets do give us a kind of absolute unique window into an absolutely fascinating human mind. Would he be a person that you'd sit down and happily enjoy a cup of coffee with? Or how tricky a character was he? Aye, he strikes me as absolutely a grand lad. It was definitely someone you'd want to spend time with. Heaven only knows what he was like in the flesh. But uh, he strikes me as a, a, you know, as an individual of such great kind of empathetic capacity. He was probably a, a, an extremely good listener as well as a conversationalist. I think you would have to be to have demonstrated this, this kind of astonishing ventriloquism. I think you'd have to be an exceptional listener. And a great psychologist. And a brilliant psychologist. Mm. Again and again, kind of. St- I think that's maybe what's really interesting about the sonnets because it's the one time where his kind of instinctive uh, incredibly penetrating insight into psychological motive fails him because he's not always able to apply it to himself and I think there's a lot of stuff in the sonnets that are just plainly revealing in a way that he hadn't intended. It's kind of interesting in as much as it's a chance to turn the tables on him and psychoanalyse him for a change whereas mostly it's been the other way around, him looking at us. And despite all the successes he's possibly as vulnerable and as bonkers as the rest of us. Or more so I think, yeah, at least as bonkers as the rest of us which of course is uh, uh, gratifying, I suppose. I do think Sonnet 18 is an, uh, is, a, is an act of the most unbelievable perfection in terms of human speech. Well, I can see clearly that I can't twist your arm to compare me or you to a summer's day. <laughs> I'm just wondering, you're here at the Dunleary Mountains Sea Books Festival and you've been teaching the craft of poetry all morning. I'm wondering, is it a craft or is it something that instinctually cannot be taught? Yeah, no, I do think poets are born, but at the same time they, uh, they have craft. I think talent's a funny thing. I think it's, it's almost the same as a obsession. I think if you love something and you can cultivate an obsession for it, you grow different parts of your brain and you get good at stuff that way. So all you need to do is to find an obsession. I think that's almost the same thing as talent. I think some things you are born with. You can't do anything without craft in any discipline. It's folly to think that you can.
that was Scottish poet and writer Don Patterson reading Shakespeare's sonnets, a new commentary, and his collection of poems, Rain, are published by Faber and Faber. Okay, next up, we'll be meeting with one of the champions of the English language, celebrated linguist David Crystal. But first, let's take a bit of a break. Welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Now, if you've missed any of our shows to date, don't worry. They're all up as podcasts on Newstalk.com and they're easy peasy to download. All you need to do is go to Newstalk.com forward slash Talking Books and we have some very handy apps for iPhone, iPad and Android. And I think it's fairly straightforward from there. Okay, let's now move into a very illuminating space, the relationship between language and history. If you lived in 1800, which words existed in English to let you talk about money or the weather or in 1600 or any time in the history of language? Fascinating questions and not easily answered. Well, not unless you're the world-renowned Lisbon-born linguist David Crystal. David Crystal is a writer, editor and internationally celebrated expert on the English language. David's latest book, Words in Time and Place, exploring language through the historical thesaurus of the Oxford English Dictionary, is one fascinating and hugely entertaining read. In Words in Time and Place, David takes 15 themes and explores the language in these areas over time, explaining when new words appeared and what such changes say about the times in which they emerged. So, for example, we get swelt to sunk, words for dying, from mint to dosh, words for money, and from dizzy to numpty, words for a fool. Words in time and place highlight some classic texts in the English language. And, not surprising, it has a lot to say about the impact of William Shakespeare on the development of modern English. In Words in Time and Place, David writes, In Act 2, Scene 2 of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Romeo tries to swear his undying love to Juliet. By yonder blessed moon, I vow, Juliet cuts him off. Oh, swear not by the moon, the inconstant moon. Romeo, totally taken aback, asks her, What shall I swear by? To which Juliet replies, Do not swear at all, or if thou wilt, swear by thy gracious self. If Romeo had the historical thesaurus of the Oxford English Dictionary available, he would have had little trouble finding an original and apt expression, for this section of the work contains over 300 options. 
Well, over the weekend, I got a chance to chat with David Crystal and I asked him about the variety of words out there for every possible experience and why we should all have a thesaurus to hand. Well, I think the first thing to appreciate is the difference between a dictionary and a thesaurus. Everybody knows what a dictionary is. In a dictionary, you know a word and you want to look up the meaning or the spelling or something. In a thesaurus, it's the other way around. You've got a vague idea about a meaning that you want to express but you can't think of the word, so you need a book to look it up. So what a thesaurus does is it gathers all the words in the language and groups them into themes, whatever it is you want to talk about, words to do with the weather or words to do with colour or whatever it might be. And when you go to that part of the thesaurus, you see all these words there together and you can find the word that you want to say. Now, thesauruses have been around quite a long time um, for the modern language. So if you want to look up the words that are grouped in meaning for the present day, that's not difficult. But nobody has ever done a historical thesaurus before. In other words, not which words are available in 2014 or 2015 to talk about the weather, but which words were available in Shakespeare's time or in Chaucer's time or at any other period in the history of the language. And that's what a historical thesaurus does. And that's where the idea came from. And what's very interesting there is... The words chosen offer you a huge window into society and the values in society and who was doing what in society because the words used were very relevant to the experience of the person who was using them. That's exactly right. Uh, uh, Some of the topics are insights into social history. There's no other way to describe it. I mean, if you go back, for example, uh, and look at all the words for dying and death, you know, when you were in Anglo-Saxon times, the way in which they thought about death being a sort of heroic thing that you do in battle, it's very different from the way you think about death when the Bible comes to the fore and religious people start to talk about heaven and the afterlife and things like that. And then you go through a period where you get some more atheistic sorts of comments about death. And, and as you go through history, you find these different periods of belief and, and ways of thinking about things coming to the fore in the language that you use. And so what a thesaurus does is it tries to show that kind of evolving pattern and a pattern, incidentally, which is, of course, still going on today. So, for instance, if you uh, if you take all the words to do with, you know, one of the chapters in the book talks about words for old people. Well, you know, what do you how do you call old people when you go back in history? They're really given a very bad press indeed and, and, and given all sorts of disgusting names. These days, we tend to talk about them in a much more respectful way talking about senior citizens, for example, and the like. All these, all these words give you that kind of sense of where we come from and where we're going. There was very different words for prostitute and, you know, how people skirted over, I suppose, how would you phrase this, the sensitivities of the word. Well, that's right. Uh, I mean, once upon a time, prostitutes were prostitutes. There we are. You'd simply talk about them in that very direct way. But in the 18th century, this was the century of politeness, of manners, of, of people. People not wanting to call a spade a spade. So that's when you get phrases like, you know, ladies of the night and things of this kind coming along. And then in the present day, um, you you get uh, a change again with uh, people wanting to, some people at least, and it shows up in the language, wanting to show that it's a profession like any other and the ladies in question need to be given a degree of respect. And so whatever your point of view about this, what you find is that the history of the vocabulary of a language reflect all these different nuances and attitudes and and gives you a better insight into the way people think than any other source 
can do. And David, it's very interesting to read how words have changed over the centuries and our use of words. I'm wondering how influential was Shakespeare to the development of the modern English language or has his role been overplayed? Well, I think it's been overplayed a bit, um, but not that much. When people um, started putting dictionaries together, the big Oxford English Dictionary, the great historical dictionary of the English language, one of the big sources they went to was Shakespeare. And they went through Shakespeare with a tooth comb. And every little um, usage that he produced went into the dictionary. As a result, everybody thought, you know, Shakespeare basically invented the English language. Now, what's happened since is that lots of other authors have been studied in this way, especially now that the internet is available. Most of the plays that were written in Shakespeare's time are now available online. And so people can search these plays and see how other people used words, not just Shakespeare. So what's happened is this, that originally people thought that Shakespeare invented about 2,000 or so words in the English language, words and idioms too as well, of course, you know, idioms like to the manner born and things like that. For a long time, people thought it was like that, which was an amazing number because, you know, inventing 2,000 words, that's tremendous. You and I would be delighted if we invented just one word in the English language, let alone 2,000. Anyway, over the past 10 or 20 years, that figure's come down quite a lot. So it's now around about, people think now it's around about, say, 1,000 or so, you know. Uh, but, but even so, words like assassination seem to be his, or some of the more inventive words, like when, she, when Lady Macbeth calls on the powers to unsex her, you know, to take away her sex and make her more like a man. A word like unsex is clearly a creative usage by Shakespeare. And when you add up all those words, you get around about a thousand, which is still an amazing total. I think probably the idioms are, are even more influential than the, the individual words, because they're things that we 